0: Your Bibles, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to begin a new book study together this morning. If you do need a Bible, there are some available in the aisle there. Just get the attention of one of the ushers so you can not just listen, but read and follow along, verify God's word for yourself and let it speak into your life this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And after you found 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Uh, If you would also uh, then mark out, if you could, Acts chapter 17. We're going to just sort of do an introductory uh, look into the book this morning as we begin a new letter and book study together. So I want to just read through some of what's there in Acts 17 regarding how this church was planted. So just mark that, if you would, while you're sort of turning in your pages. 1 Thessalonians 1 and Acts 17. And if you've uh, made it there, we're going to just read through verses 1 through 3 and sort of give an introduction this morning. If your turn there, would you do as we stand together in reverence of the Word of God with me as we read our portion of the Scripture this morning. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the Church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father and God, we humbly bow our hearts before you now. We want to continue in worship as we submit our hearts, our soul, our mind, our spirit to the very voice of you as the living God that your inspired and recorded word, every thought and intent behind why you gave it would speak in a personal and direct and powerful way to us this morning. Lord, we humbly ask, give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this portion of your word Speak to us, meet us where we're at, Lord, and say something that we need to hear from your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it seems to come quite natural and easy to focus on what's wrong in life. And to tend to think about unfortunate things that have happened and dwell on that, whether it's unfortunate things that have happened in the world or in life or even the unfortunate and wrong things maybe that have happened to me personally. And that's why I think there is really something very healthy, something very therapeutic, something very liberating to actually choose and I emphasize choose to reflect upon and to rejoice in the good things that God has done and to choose to reflect on those things and even to be thankful for those things and even express gratitude with our words to God regarding those things and even to express that gratitude and thankfulness to others. And that's what we find here really, if you can tell from our reading in the opening few statements here in this opening chapter of this new letter we're beginning Paul, in his experiences, when you read uh, the letters of the New Testament, the book of Acts, certainly this guy had plenty of reasons, honestly, to sincerely focus on wrong that had been done. Yet we find Paul here in this first chapter instead rejoicing in what God has done. And I think to myself, may we learn from that lesson, rejoicing in what God has done. Now, first Thessalonians Many believe was Paul's earliest or first letter that was written, written from Corinth. And since today we are beginning a a brand new study through a new book in the Bible here, I want to consider sort of a brief background of the church plant in Thessalonica to kind of give us a backdrop and a foundation because it's important as we study through this letter. Thessalonica, which is the church there that Paul is writing to, uh, that area was originally a Greek establishment. It was uh, built near what is uh, called uh, some hot springs there in area of Therma. It was later renamed Thessalonica once it uh, had been there for some time. The Romans later conquered the area and renamed it and gave it that to be the capital of that province in that particular area there on the banks of the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea and it was a chief seaport It was a shipping center. It was sort of a major metropolitan area, if you would. It had another incredible advantage in that it was an area where the Ignatian Way ran right through that city. Now, the Ignatian Way was basically this incredible road that ran from Rome to the Orient uh, that put, therefore, a city in direct contact with all other important cities and trade routes and so forth. And because of that, the population of Thessalonica on that day, which was around 200,000 people, so that's a pretty substantial-sized city even in that ancient culture... It was strategically located governmentally and militarily and even economically that caused it to become sort of a major metropolitan area. And most of its inhabitants in this bustling sort of urban city, if you can envision in your mind, most of its inhabitants were Greeks. There were also Romans there. And wherever commerce flourished, as would be this city of Thessalonica, whenever commerce flourished in the ancient culture, you would always find as well Jewish businessmen who were Present, and that's why uh, there was a synagogue there, which was a direct connection to this church plant of Paul going And the Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica was extremely influential because we see not only Jews, but even Greeks were there in this particular Thessalonican culture as far as the moral climate of the city of Thessalonica. It had a pagan Greek religion predominantly, which contributed to very loose moral uh, fiber in the culture. There was all types of sexual perversion and immorality that ran rampant in that particular area. So the Jewish synagogue provided really in some ways the one moral base For that area where if people desired something different, uh, they could find some moral foundation for their life or their family. Now, I asked you to mark Acts 17. If you'll just turn there with me, I want to just, in a sense, read through these verses because uh, this gives to us a record of the church plant uh, of the city of Thessalonica, how the church was planted there. This church was planted by Paul during his second missionary journey. Uh, and Acts 17 verses 1 through 10 record this church plant. And I would just say this if you have a heart to plant a church, this would be another good place to study because the Holy Spirit records how Paul went and planted this church, what components were involved what experiences transpired and it's just something i want to lay out for you maybe you can go back and read through it a little more but gives us the basis of who this church is that paul is writing back to now after he had planned it and moved on and is now writing back to a church that he once established as jesus directed him to do Acts 17 verse 1 says now when they had passed through uh Infopolis, And Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was, notice, a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, notice, as his custom was, this was his custom, his style, his tradition and philosophy of ministry when he church planted, as was his custom, went into them, and for three Sabbaths, or three weeks, the idea is, three different weekends, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ, the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. So notice Paul's custom. He went to people where they were. He connected with them with what level of spiritual understanding they already had. And from the old Testament scriptures, what does Paul do? He utilizes the scripture and he presents Jesus to people. Interesting. Paul didn't have all the other things that many times people even in the modern church today say are necessary for church plans. Paul didn't have a set team with every member lined up perfectly. You know, well, you're this and you're a strategic marketing person and you're this and that. He he didn't have any of that. He went into the community. He had a copy of the word of God in his hand and he knew what I need to do is point people and present people Jesus Christ from the word of God. And this was the root basis from which this church was planted. And I think it's a great foundation. It says, verse four, that as he did that, reasoned from the scriptures with them and preached Jesus to them. It says, verse four, that some of them, notice, were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks were also in that synagogue and not a few of the leading women. And they joined Paul and Silas. The ideas became a part of the family of God. But the Jews, some of the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, they set all in the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, where Paul, it seems, was lodging, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the ruler of the city, crying out, these men who have turned the world upside down. Now they've come here to our town too. Now the truth of the matter is that's a little bit backwards. They actually were turning the world back right side up. The world's already upside down, (laughs) but that's an unbeliever's perspective. They're turning the world upside down. No, they're actually setting it back the right way. The world is upside down because of sin but again they're they're all up in arms and upset because of what's happening because jesus is having an impact and lives are being transformed so notice verse seven jason has harbored them and these men are acting contrary to the decrees of caesar the roman ruler saying there is another king Who is Jesus? Again, that's what they were doing, telling people, Jesus is king. You need to surrender to him, follow him. That was their message in communities. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then the brethren, seeing what was happening, realized that Paul needed to depart. And immediately they sent Paul and Silas away by night. To Berea. So they were somewhat driven out of the city just because of how chaotic things became as a result of this church plan. But again, take notice using the scriptures, preaching Jesus, and what happens as a part of a church plan. It says some believed, some got saved, but there were others who rejected and they weren't interested and they refused the message. So again, some responded, others did not. That's a part of the process in ministry. But you also notice verse five down through verse 10. What else happened? All kinds of resistance and antagonism took place as well. It says that people got envious and angry. Imagine that in a church plant. People getting envious and jealous over, you know, ridiculous things. And, and wait a minute, I thought this was a church plant. Why are people getting attitudes? Why are people getting angry? Why? Why is there resistance and antagonism? But notice evil men they they troubled them they caused problems and there were all these different i mean so much so that in this church plant paul only made it about a month it seems and he was literally driven out of town he literally was just sort of pushed away and moved on to the area of berea now come back with me over to first thessalonians sort of gives you a little bit of a backdrop there of this particular church plant just to give you a little understanding But here's this interesting thing we realize. Paul was only there for a short time, and this is what's phenomenal. It's truly amazing what happened as the result of a genuine, powerful work of the Spirit of God. People got saved, a church got established and planted, and even continued without the Apostle Paul's presence. The spirit of God allowed that church to still take root and to flourish even after Paul's departure. And in a short season, Paul was there. They were even though they were a brand new church and predominantly a lot of new converts, a good amount of important doctrine, it seems, was taught to this brand new infant church. We know that because as we read 1 Thessalonians and study it together, we can tell that these Christians Paul's writing to are very familiar with some pretty weighty doctrinal things. Paul will discuss in this letter things they're familiar with already like election in regards to salvation. He'll discuss things like the work of the Holy Spirit and sanctification. He'll talk much about the return of the Lord and the rapture and the second coming. And as he goes into Second Thessalonians, the Antichrist. He talks about the inspiration of scriptures and Satan's activity and spiritual gifts and even the maturity to accept as a Christian that even a part of the Christian life means suffering and enduring persecution as the result of following Jesus. It's truly amazing how in-depth Paul became and went doctrinally in teaching this very young church in the short time that he was there and how in depth he took them in doctrinal things. Now, since Paul left, as we saw, in rather an abrupt manner due to the persecution, he was sort of literally kind of just driven out of town there in Thessalonica. Paul was concerned and wondered as a pastor's heart how that church was doing spiritually because he kind of much quicker than he planned, got sort of driven out of town circumstantially. So his heart was concerned with how they were doing. And that seems to be one of the major incentives for why he wrote this letter back to them because he was concerned with how they were doing spiritually you pick that up really from chapters two and three in fact if you want to just glance with me into chapter two and three you can sense here again familiarizing you with this letter this is why paul wants to write this letter back to them look at chapter two verse uh, 17 paul says but we brethren having been look what he says taken away from you for a short time in presence but not in heart We endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, when we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. He says, Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer endure, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and minister of God, and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you, and to encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken. By these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we're appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it's happened. And you know, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter, the devil had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now Timothy has come to us and brought us a good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we, you also. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we're comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you? Verse 9. For all the joy in which we rejoice for your sake before God. Night and day praying exceedingly. He says that we may see your face and perfect. What is lacking in your faith? So Paul now gets this report from Timothy, who he sent because he couldn't get there. Timothy comes back, shares great encouragement of how well they're doing. And Paul now feels led from Corinth to write this letter to them, which we're going to begin studying here in the weeks of to basically just invest a little in them spiritually because he couldn't get there practically and be in their presence. And we'll see that he writes for a few reasons, to praise and encourage them with how pleased and proud he was of them, of how well they were doing spiritually. We'll see he also writes to them to address some accusations and some criticisms that had arisen towards Paul and his character, as the devil was trying to use disruptions to discredit Paul's credibility and ministry so that people would sort of abandon, you know, the concept of hearing from him or abandon really this whole Christian thing that had just began there. The devil was trying to do that and Paul has to address some of that. And he also writes to clarify and further explain some doctrinal truths about the return of Jesus and some other subjects as well. So look with me, chapter one, verse one. Let's sort of take a little introduction here into the book this morning with that backdrop. We appreciate your patience there to give you some foundation to what we'll be looking at. Paul begins this letter, verse one of chapter one, saying, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the letter opens with the ancient correspondence, very typical to how they would write letters in that day. The writer would introduce themselves to the recipients on the front side of the letter rather than at the end by writing, you know, you know sincerely Bob or sincerely uh, Sally or whatever. At the beginning of letters, they would identify who was writing. Again, many times letters were in scrolls so that way you didn't have to unroll the entire thing to see at the bottom who was writing to you right away you were told at the beginning. And I'm sure sometimes then if you saw a name you didn't like, you just threw the scroll away. You know, well, Paul, not him, woo, you know. Uh, But it lets you know who was communicating. So this was how they did it in that culture. Paul writes this letter, but we see it sent in partnership with Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus is just another name for Silas, who was Paul's supportive companion alongside him in his second missionary journey. Timothy was a young man who Paul invited to come along with him. On his missions trips so that it seems Paul could mentor him and invest in him, he kind of became a protege in the ministry with Paul, like an apprentice, and Paul invested in him, and ultimately Timothy developed the same heart and vision for ministry as Paul, and then Paul would send Timothy as an extension of himself and his ministry at times when he couldn't get to certain places. He could send out Timothy as he sent him back to Thessalonica to find out things and to minister on his behalf. Paul then addresses the local congregation that he's writing to. He says there, verse one, you see it. it's to the church of the Thessalonians, to the church of the Thessalonians. You might want to circle or underline the word church there. It doesn't show up a whole lot of times in the bible but it's important to understand when the bible uses the word church what does that really mean the word that's used for church in the original language is the word ecclesia and literally that term meant a called out assembly now i want to draw that to your attention this morning it means a called out assembly in other words these Christians were a called out assembly of people from among the population of the Thessalonian culture. That gives the idea of what a church really is. A church is not a building or a property that you go to. A church is not a establishment or even an organization or even a social club. But a church is a people who have been called out of the world's system of sin and darkness and who have been called out of that sin and darkness by a supernatural saving work of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, where God draws us out of the kingdom of darkness and we're rescued, if you would, from the enslavement of an evil kingdom that we all once are a part of until the day that King Jesus liberates us and takes us out of the enemy's camp. Paul said it this way to the Colossians. He said, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So this is what the church is. The church is a a, a assembly of people who have been called out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into a new kingdom to serve a new king, Jesus, as our master and Lord. We also are not those who are just called out, but we're a called out assembly. We're an assembly of people, meaning that the reason the Lord drew us out of that was also to become a part of a new family, not to just be an isolated individual who's not heard before. I love, I love Jesus, I just don't like the church There's something very wrong with that. You know, that, that would, you know, Jesus is the head, the church is the body. I've said before, that would be like me saying to my wife, you know, your head, your face, ooh, the rest of your body, ooh. I'll take your face, but your body, ooh. Oh, I love Jesus, I just hate the body of Christ. Now the church is to be a called out assembly, indicating what we're supposed to be, a people who assemble together. It's a shared spiritual life where we assemble together routinely and regularly in the name of Jesus and we share the same desires and purpose and that we regularly, routinely assemble together for worship of King Jesus and to be built up spiritually and to share our lives. Again, John chapter 20 says with the early disciples on the first day of the week, Jesus's disciples assembled together together in the upper room. You read Acts chapter two, you see that they assembled and gathered together daily and regularly. We read in Acts chapter four in the early church, it says when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Please hear this, or maybe write down this point this morning. The life of a healthy Christian is one that assembles together with other christians the life of a healthy christian is one who assembles together with other christians who have been called out to assemble together as a spiritual family god's design and ideal is that we do assemble together so that's the way in which whereby we grow most and where we stay the safest spiritually and where at the same time we remain the healthiest. Hebrews 10 says it this way. Hebrews ten twenty four and 25 says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Listen, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. So the writer of Hebrews says, this is what some are doing and it's not good. It's not healthy important for us to remember he says but exhorting one another and so much more as the day is approaching so listen jesus calls us to be a part of the church to draw us out of the world that we might then live assembled together in a way whereby he might work in us to his fullest extent now what makes someone become a part of the church well, again, the scripture answers that question right here in our verse. What makes somebody become a part of the church? Is it, is it just a matter of attending some meetings at the church, with the church? I, again, is, is it kind of sort of like any other social club where perhaps informally or formally you get co- sort of connected to a group of people like going to the local uh, uh, you know Elks Lodge or Moose Lodge? or or attending some meetings at the, the local yacht club no no it's a spiritual family to become a part of the church is a direct result of having had a spiritual encounter and a spiritual experience and to become in a spiritual relationship where you become a part of the family of God look what Paul says verse one with me he says to the church of the Thessalonians look at this word here's how you become a part of the church They were in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how someone genuinely becomes a part of the church. They are in a spiritual condition. They're in a relationship with God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. That's what causes someone to, in a sense, be a part of the church. People can gather and hang out with the church, but you're not a part of the church you're not included in the church until you're in God the Father and in a relationship with the Son Jesus Christ it comes through a supernatural experience where at some point you actually become a child of God through a spiritual birth experience and that happens through experiencing salvation with Jesus as your Savior where you recognize like we all must at some point I am a wretched depraved sinner And I'm guilty before a holy God. And my self-righteousness or being a good boy or trying to offer God my best efforts will never suffice. I need to be cleansed. I need to be forgiven. And Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe he died in my place and he sacrificed and he bled out his life and that he rose from the dead. And now he can forgive me. He can save me from the wrath that I deserve and he can allow me to be taken away from the penalty of hell and he can draw me into a relationship with himself and his father and give me access and eternal life. And that is something we all must come to at some point in our life whereby we then enter in to God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And as we then enter into the spiritual family of God, once that happens, we become a part of the church and we're placed supernaturally into this assembly, a spiritual assembly. We're then placed into an assembly of God's people to worship and serve Jesus. We become citizens of heaven and foreigners somewhat then to this present world. Look what Jesus said in John 15. Jesus said these words, you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. In other words, Jesus said, look, you're not a part of the world anymore. You're in it, but you're not a part of it anymore. I chose you out of it. But he also said, that's part of the reason why you're always going to experience tension in the world. Because there are two different families and two different kingdoms. we in one or the other. If you're not in it this morning, we'd love to have you join the family. And love to see you accept Jesus' love and enter in to the family of God. Paul goes on, verse one, to say, "Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." So again, a typical Pauline greeting in the ancient culture. This is what they do. They'd see one another. They'd pronounce a blessing over someone when they met them or they encountered. They would say, "Grace." or peace shalom this was just a typical way they would greet in the ancient culture not just a casual greeting i think paul also realized that experiencing grace and experiencing peace was something that came in a particular way because notice he says grace and peace to you that's typical but he says let me be honest that only comes he says verse one there from god our father and from the lord jesus christ Yes, it was a typical greeting, but Paul also knew that the only way to really find grace and to receive peace in the fullest sense is to receive it from God the Father and from his son, Jesus Christ. I say that because maybe this morning you've been trying to find help or inner rest from other things or from other people. And Maybe God would want you to realize or to remember that finding grace to help you and finding inner rest and peace that's going to be discovered most fully in God the Father and in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's from them that we experience the grace of God and the peace in the deepest way. Verse 2, Paul then says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing, he says, your work of faith, labor of love and patience of hope in our lord jesus christ in the sight of our god and father so here in verse two and three paul indicates now as he opens the letter his appreciation to god for these thessalonian believers in the church there and he remembers it seems some of the evidences of their salvation experience that paul saw that's what he's indicating here. He says in the sight of God, our father, that is in God's presence. He says, verse two, in God's sight, we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers." Notice with me, if you wouldn't, verse two, the plural pronouns there, he says, we give thanks to God. And he says, our prayers In other words, Paul's purposely indicating, referring not just to himself, but also Silas and Timothy, indicating that each one of them prayed individually. We pray, he's saying. And that they also no doubt prayed together collectively at times in meetings. And I think that's a good reminder. We thank God our prayers. It's a reminder that not just the Apostle Paul's of the Christian faith need to have a personal prayer life. Every Christian needs to develop a personal prayer life. Whether you're a Paul or a Silas or a Timothy, we all need to develop a personal prayer life. And more than that, we all need to realize that it's important at times that we pray together. That at times, yes, we pray and intercede, but sometimes there's something very valuable the Bible teaches about our prayers. Remember when... You know, Peter was in prison, Acts chapter 12, and it says the whole church gathered together and they prayed together. Jesus speaks of the power of when we agree about things together in his name. And there's something very healthy about praying together. It unifies hearts. It safeguards us. Jesus honors that. And look, I understand. I, I talk to people. I remember stages in my Christian life. Perhaps you're someone who even says, you know, man, I hear what you're saying, but I, I struggle with prayer. I, I just, I, I struggle. I, honestly, I don't know what to say. I, I don't even know what to pray about personally. Or, and that's why I really struggle praying with people corporately. Well, well, let me say this. How about just trying to keep it really simple? In fact, here's a really novel idea. What if we just followed the example, for starters, that the Bible sets before us right there in verse 2? I mean, look at the simplicity of it. What does he say there? He says, we thank God and we make mention of you. What about the simplicity of just saying, you know what, I think I could follow that, thank God, and make mention of a few people. Thank God, and mention a few people. And what a wonderful thing to consider, that's pretty simplistic and easy to do. Why not just begin with that if you struggle with prayer, and let the Lord guide and grow your prayer life going forward from there. Again, if I can illustrate, oftentimes isn't it true that the hardest part of communication, if you've ever communicated or dialogued with somebody, a lot of times isn't it true that the hardest part of communication is what? Getting started. You ever notice that? Isn't that true? The hardest part's just getting started, working up the courage to talk to that pretty girl, or or working up the courage to deal with this difficult situation. Oh, I know we need to talk, but what's the hardest part? Just getting started. And once you get started and you start talking, isn't it true? It tends to just start flowing and getting a little easier once communication starts. What's prayer? Nobody knows? Communication. Thank you, John. He's awake still. It's communication. It's communication. The hardest part's just getting started. Lord, I just, I thank you for who you are. I I thank you. And Lord, I just... Lord, thank you that John answers my question in a sermon. Lord, you know, uh, just just mention a few people and see. As you begin to pray, relax. Once you begin to pray and talk, start simple and let God begin to then cultivate that communication and prayer life. It seems as these men prayed for different things in various churches, that whenever they mentioned the church of Thessalonica and they thought about those believers, they became very thankful in their hearts for them. Do you you see that from the text there? He says, we give thanks to God for you all. It seems that whenever they thought about them, they became thankful for how well they were doing spiritually, and what an encouragement they were to individuals. Paul said to them as he's writing, and this is beautiful that he pens this. He says, "We want you to know, we want you to hear, man, we really give thanks to God for you. I think that's beautiful. Hey, this morning, who in your spiritual life and in God's family are you thankful for? Who in the spiritual life have you thanked God for and and honestly. Have you taken the time to thank the Lord personally for that individual? And more than that, to remember them before the Lord in prayer as a way to do something, as a blessing to them. And here's an even huge step to actually maybe go to the place where how about you actually tell them how and why you're really thankful to God for them. Because I'll tell you something. Is it not true, ladies and gentlemen, that when we express encouragement and appreciation to people in relationships that really does something awesome for relationships when you appreciate someone and you use words to articulate that you appreciate them that has a wonderful effect because it infuses people with fresh enthusiasm to keep being who they are and really to stay on course with the thing that you just praise them for that makes them feel very edified and encouraged. So just so beautiful here, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit. So we just want you to know we thank God for you. And then he identifies in verse three here a few specific things he remembered that caused him to be thankful, particularly for this young church. He says there, verse three, he says three things, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, number one, your labor of love, number two, and your patience of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ. The NIV version translates that this way. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all three of those attributes they possessed were really outward evidences that Paul took note of and and remembered that really... Prove the power of salvation had happened in their lives. This work of faith, labor of love, and patient hope in the Lord Jesus Christ were really sort of evidences proving and demonstrating that salvation had, indeed had happened in their lives. Let's look at them together. The first thing Paul said we're pleased to observe and reflect on, he says, man, we're so thankful when we think about your work of faith. Now the idea there, that statement, is your work originating from your faith or, or your work as a result of your faith. Their faith toward the Lord Jesus, as savior and Lord, notice it affected their lives in a measurable way. It was a work of faith that began in their heart and it became observable because their faith prompted corresponding works. Their work produced or yielded faith. Now look, the Bible is very clear. The Bible is very, very clear that it teaches us that we are not saved, we are not forgiven of our sins, we don't get access into heaven as the result of doing good works. Again, Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So Paul's not contradicting what the New Testament teaches yet. Here's the thing, that's Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Ephesians 2.10 the very next verse after that says this For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's what the Bible teaches in balance. The point is, we're not saved by our works, but genuine saving faith works. We're not saved by our works, but genuine saving faith, because the power of salvation of God transforms a life, that works. It begins with the, in a sense, the the work of trusting Jesus completely for salvation and forgiveness and then letting that work itself out of your life as you fully surrender and submit to him. Faith in Jesus produces fruit in a life that includes consistent works with the faith that we possess. James 2 indicates this. You might want to read it where James there in James 2 speaks about, show me your faith without your works. And he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my faith by my works. other where James was realizing, remember James said, even demons believe in God and they shudder, they fear God. In other words, what was James saying? He's saying, look, just assenting to facts means not that demons acknowledge who God is. Demons theology is somewhat accurate. It's probably more sound than some people, quite honestly. But he says, but their works aren't consistent with having a a saving, healthy relationship with God. They just assent to facts. So he's saying our genuine saving faith will always, if we have true faith, it will cause us to behave consistent with what we really believe. What we believe will always affect the way we consistently behave as a result, which is an indication that oftentimes the way I behave is typically a reflection of what I really do or don't believe. And the Bible emphasizes that Paul, speaking of this work of faith happening among them, said it was observable. In fact, you notice verse nine there, he says in the middle of it, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. That's their work of faith. Paul says it worked itself out because you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Their works were observable to demonstrate their faith. Titus warns in his writing of those who profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. Now that's sobering, but that's intended to speak into our lives in love because God says, look, I don't want somebody to be deceived falsely of where they're at spiritually. That's why Paul would write to the Corinthians and say, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Is there an observable evidence? Is there really a work of faith happening in your lives? Or are you just professing things about the faith? That's, that's important. Paul saw and rejoiced in this genuine work of faith happening in these Christian lives of the Thessalonians. And, you know, I'll tell you, I can understand that. It is such a joy It should be for you too to watch a work of faith happening in your lives and in each other's lives. Wow, look what the Lord's doing in his life and you see that work of faith beginning to blossom. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful thing and Paul saw that in this church here. Hey, great question this morning. Do you have a faith that works? Is your faith impacting and influencing how you live and what you do? If so, your faith is working. If not it might be good to sort that out with God. God, I don't really know if I see a a work of faith, a real work of faith happening in my life. And that would be something very important to sort out with God if you're not 100% sure about. Secondly, Paul not only saw a work of faith, but he also saw, we see here, a labor of love, a labor of love. That describes the motive behind their labors. And all that they did, the word labor there is a word that means to sacrifice or serve to the point of exhaustion, to the point of weariness. There was a willingness among this group of believers to give of themselves in a self-sacrificing way to demonstrate and show their love. And Paul observed that conduct and recalled it to mind how they would just labor tirelessly. Now, I don't think it was because they just loved the labor and were workaholics. There was a reason why. Why would they have such a willingness to labor, to serve Jesus, and to serve people? Where would that come from? Well, Paul tells us there. He says it was a labor of love. It was a labor of love. It was a love in their heart that motivated them to serve and to give and to keep on working at something. It was their love for the Lord personally and i think it also was a love that came from the lord that he deposited into their hearts supernaturally what did paul say the love of christ compels me paul is pointing out that reality that when he fell in love with jesus because he experienced the love of god in his life you know when you experience god's love for you and the love of jesus man that revolutionizes you doesn't it and all of a sudden this responsive law back as you begin to love the lord you're just prompted to want to serve him. You're prompted to want to share. It just, again, I think of my relationship with my wife. When I fell in love with my wife, nobody had to command me or tell me to labor for her. I wanted to labor for her. It was a labor of love. It just, it came with the territory. I, when you have children, it's a labor of love, right? You just, you, that love prompts you to labor for them. And see, this is the thing. Our love for the Lord prompts us but also there's a labor of love that happens in the sense that isn't it true that as you have a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit sometimes deposits into your heart a love for a person or he deposits in your heart a love for people. And so therefore you can labor to serve somebody because there's a love that God's put in your heart there. And he puts a love into your heart that's not natural, it's supernatural. It's the fruit of his spirit. And therefore, you can labor tirelessly and give and and you're thinking, here, you're laboring, laboring and, and, and it's, it truly seems like nothing. Why? Because you're blinded to it because it's a labor of love. Now, by the same token, we have to be honest. Perhaps you're laboring and it's a labor. And you're like, this is such a labor. Well, if so, you might want to ask the Lord, Why is it such a labor? Why is it such a labor? Maybe there's an answer to that or maybe you just need to say, God, I need a renewal of your love. I need you to pour out and baptize me with your Holy Spirit afresh that love would be poured into my heart so that I could serve out of love. And that it wouldn't just be a labor, but a labor of love. Thirdly and finally, Paul speaks of how he remembered their patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll talk much about this in the weeks ahead. That word patience there means to bear up under, to endure pressure. He's referring to their willingness to endure difficulty because of their hope. In the return of jesus christ that's what he's referring to titus 3 says looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great god and savior jesus christ this was the hope that this young church really found themselves locked into this as they met jesus and salvation they all of a sudden knew hey jesus is coming back for us He's going to return. And that gave them patient endurance to carry on in the midst of their hardships. Remember, we saw an ax. As soon as they got saved, what happened right away? Oh, we met Jesus. Life's wonderful now. Zippity-doo. No, what happened? Problems. Lots of problems. Well, I thought you get saved. It fixes all your problems. It does. Your eternal problems. It fixes your eternal problems and it starts all your earthly problems. Doesn't it kind of seem it works that way? But what was it that helped them to carry? How do you carry on then? In hardship and difficulty and affliction and pain and suffering and spiritual resistance. What was it that helped them endure? Their hearts were now attached to heaven. And because their hearts were attached to heaven, they were going through difficulty and pain and hard things. But their hope in Jesus' coming is what enabled them to find endurance. To keep going. To not give up. And I'll tell you, isn't it true, again, when there's an awareness that something has a time limit, somehow it's easier to just keep going at it. If you don't know anything has an end, there's no buzzer at the end of the sports game, it'd be tough to to give your best. But when you watch the clock and you see it winding down and you're exhausted and you're hurting, but you realize that there's only two and a half minutes left in this game. There's something about that that gives you the endurance to fuel you to keep going because you know this is only going to last for a time. There's a short duration left, and therefore I can endure through this because I know it's going to end soon. And it's so wonderful how an anticipation of Jesus' return is one of the greatest things to fuel the endurance spiritually in the soul of God's children. It helps us not give up and keep going. In fact, this is going to be one of the main and broadest themes that we're going to see throughout 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. They are letters about, not just explaining, but letters that give much insight and encouragement regarding the return of Jesus. In fact, take note if you want to read this week how the end of each chapter in this book, the end of each chapter, again, directly references the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuously we see it, we'll see much about it, You know, as the word of God closes in Revelation 22, three times, Jesus there repeats a refrain. Here's what he repeats three times in Revelation 22. Jesus' three words that he felt were so important, he repeated three times as the Bible closes. Here's what they were. I am coming. Because Jesus knew it would be hard and he knew that you would be struggling and suffering and wrestling through things in your life, and and he wanted you to know this. I love you. You hang in there. I'm coming. Shall we stand together and pray?